0: You know, I just, I just had a revelation. Instead of giving a message today, I'm just going to share my sermon notes with you guys via email, and you can um, give your own message, yeah? <laughs> I've been, I have been promising this to you for some time, and we finally arrived here today. It is the beginning, anyway. The beginning of... Yeshua and the afterlife. You might think we've spent time there so far, but we really have not yet. And, and the truth is, this isn't an easy conversation. So once again, you'll have to put your thinking cap on. I'm not sure what those are. I know that's not what Dave was wearing. Um, and, and, and open your ears and really internalize and listen and think for the next, actually, few weeks. I think ultimately when we arrive somewhere, you will be happy. Now, it's been a couple of weeks since we talked. Uh, I was out last week, so I hope, I'm certain, it's not even a hope, I'm certain that you remember every single thing I said two weeks ago about Gehenna, Sheol, paradise, geography of Sheol, everything that happened there. Well, if not, just listen to number five, paradise and punishment in this series. But today, we finally get to uh, kind of jump in officially to the New Testament relevance. Are there answers there? Where do we go when we die? How did Jesus, as a matter of fact, come and fix all that crazy Jewish thinking that we've had to lay the foundation and works for so far? What did he say about that? After all, I mean, he is our rabbi, our source, our go-to answer. What did he say about Heaven. To which many people would say he said everything. He was was always talking about going to heaven. Kingdom of heaven here and kingdom of heaven there. And you know, all of these things. And no, that's not at all what that means. And we've already established that pretty clearly. When Yeshua talks about the kingdom of heaven, he's not really talking about a place in the sky, is he? The kingdom of heaven is what he's bringing to earth. And when he uses the term heaven, he's using that as a circumlocution, one of my favorite words. A nice way to not take the Lord's name in vain. Because you didn't do that in first century Israel. You didn't walk around saying the holy name of God, and you were very protective of that. So many times you see Yeshua talking about heaven. Heaven meaning the one who dwells in heaven. God. God. The Master of all, Adon Olam, the Master of the world, Kingdom of Heaven is not up there; it's here. So we can't say that that was Yeshua talking about heaven. Well, man, it's—I mean, it's—it's—it's in the—it's in the Gospels. You know, He's going to save us, so we go to heaven. No. The gospel is repent because the kingdom of God has drawn near to you and you should start acting like it. That's one part of the gospel. And he does, actually. Yeshua does talk about eternal life. You hear hear that conversation for sure. And, And well, what else does that mean? That just means going to heaven, brother. No, it also doesn't really mean that exactly. It means in this context, when he's talking about it, to be a participant through the resurrection of the righteous, a member of the family, uh, uh, which all actually sort of points back to some Hebrew for you, the kingdom of heaven. When Yeshua talks about eternal life, the first step to eternal life is where? Through the kingdom of heaven, which is the thousand-year reign that is established on earth when the king comes and does it. It's not really eternal life. There is an eternal component, and there is a destination, and we'll, we'll talk about that. But right now, we're just sort of laying some other groundwork. After the kingdom of heaven, we arrive where? in what might actually sort of be called heaven, which is the olam haba, the world to come. But where is it? Floating up in the sky, seven heavens above and higher? No, the olam haba is also here. But it's not this, it's something else. It's the new heaven and the new earth. And we're going to be participating in that. So, Talking about where we're going to go when we die is, is sort of loosely, I guess you could say, is thrown in there in a certain way. But that's not his focus. And we don't even really know much of anything about heaven. As a matter of fact, the rabbis hardly even speculate about it. Why? Because no eye has seen, no ear has heard the great things that God has in store for you in the heavens that are coming. I'm looking forward to that. I like surprises, good surprises. So that theology, though, when we look and view it through a Jewish lens, is pretty well established, Um, that that's that's the Jewish framework of what that blueprint or timeline or plan is going to look like. Very little discussion in the New Testament about heaven. We did learn two weeks ago, Yeshua has some things to say about a place that we learned. Sheol, Hades, Gehenna, hell is your translations. And those things often have something to do with bad behavior, even related so lightly as to calling your brother good for nothing. Yeshua says you'll go to Gehenna for that. Strange. But there's not a lot. And you want to talk about even less, read the apostles, and even less, read Paul. Paul has very, very little to say. Well, First Thessalonians, we'll talk about that. Which raises a question: why not? Why not? If this is the end goal, if this is the point, if this is what Yeshua is already all about, why isn't it in there more? And I like the way Daniel Lancaster quote, uh, uh, sort of lays this out. We'll call it the, um, the, the, uh, the baptism principle. Well, the, how about the baptism theory? Baptism, we know, is a very big deal, right? We know that. It is one of the elementary principles of God that we talked about in Hebrew. The, the, the washing, washings, right? Instructions about washings. And yet, when we read the New Testament, there's really nothing in there about how do I do a baptism, exactly when do I do a baptism, how does it work, what's the parameters, you know, all of those things. Why? I mean, we spent two weeks talking about it, and in in one line, instructions about washings, we stretched that into two weeks. Why isn't it everywhere? You want to know the reason? Because they all knew it. They already knew it. And that's ultimately what we talked about with that, is that of course they didn't need a chapter or an entire book of the Bible about baptisms. Jews were familiar with it. The audience had received the information, understood the value and purpose of them. Yes, there was something new about this one. But he was speaking to a Jewish audience who was very familiar with what it means. Why then? You can extend this over into the question I'm asking you. Why not a ton of discussion about heaven and hell in the New Testament? The baptism principle. They already knew it. They already understood. They were familiar. They had a lot of this stuff going on around them. And that, my friends, is why I've taken you so far and so long into this process of Jewish understanding of the afterlife. Because that was their understanding. Now, the great news is we finally arrive at one of the exceptions, I think, that for the most part, the, the exceptions to the silence on the topic that we're talking about. This is Luke 16, Avraham's bosom. It's the only gospel in which we find this. There was a rich man, and he had a manager over his house. No, nope, that's not it. That's somebody else. There's another rich man. There was once a rich man. A lot of rich men. He was dressed in purple and fine linen and enjoyed delights and rejoiced every day. A poor poor man named Lazar, Eleazar, Lazarus, was laid at the opening of the gate of his house, and he was full of blisters. He craved to be satisfied from the bits that fell from the rich man's table. The dogs would even come and lick his blisters. That's some background. Now, when the poor man died, the angels carried him to, as Delich describes it or, or translates it, Abraham's lap, Abraham's side, Abraham's bosom, Abraham's lap. The angels came and carried him to Abraham's lap. The rich man also died and was buried. He was in, most of your translations say, Hades. We know that to be Sheol. And we'll uh, uh, up the ante on that in just a second. And his pain was very, very great. Where was the poor man? Where was Lazarus? Where was he? Abraham's lap. What is Abraham's lap? Well, here is one prominent type of Christian understanding and definition of this the limbo, it's called limbus partum. The holding place of the fathers. It's a place just sort of on the edge of hell where the good guys from the Old Testament go. And other people. Other good people. Until Jesus died and went down and unlocked the gates and let all of them out and they resurrected. you familiar with this story. This is called the harrowing of hell right? So Abraham's bosom is sort of this holding place for the good guys, but Jesus went in and fixed that. Draws from 1 Peter 3, 1 Peter 4. He went down and preached the gospel to the good guys. They believed and got out. Ephesians, he took captivity. Captive. I'm not exactly sure what that means. That's why we see resurrected people walking around after Yeshua's resurrection. This wasn't them. I'm just going to let you know that. Okay? That, that, wasn't, that, that wasn't Abraham and David walking around. And it's a really strange thing that those people resurrected right after Yeshua. And there's no explanation for this. But that's something else that I'm not going into. The wicked ones down there who weren't in Abraham's bosom, where were they? They're in Gehenna. They are... They are miserable. I guess, you know, they they must have heard the gospel too, but unfortunately, too bad. That's it, you're there, stuck, burning in torment and fire. Anyone know where the harrowing of hell comes from? I mean, well, first of all, the harrowing of hell, what I just told you about. Have you heard this before? I mean, everyone, I think, is familiar with the idea that Jesus died, went down, and unlocked the captives and let everybody go, right? You know know what, what that is? That is Christian midrash, okay? That is Christian midrash. We might, and I don't want to be, like, pushing anybody's buttons the wrong way. Okay, I will. It might be Christian myth. As a matter of fact it probably is christian myth the earliest real indications we have from this idea of the harrowing of hell are from about the mid-second century And Tertullian, who didn't even agree with it, recognizes it, and some other church fathers. I don't want to bore you with the details, but there are some apocryphal Christian texts from the mid-2nd century, but the most influential about the harrowing of hell is called the Gospel of Nicodemus. That is dated from at the earliest, about 395 CE or AD, and as late as 550 AD. That is a long, long time after the Gospels and the disciples and all these types of things. So as cool of a story as that might be, it's potentially just something that somebody made up to make sure you make the right decision to go in the direction they would have you go. into a certain way of having people think. Now, we're not going to find precedent for that in the early community. But there's a very important consideration in that. Abraham's bosom, or call it paradise in Sheol for our discussion, was emptied out. That's what this says. And that's what a lot of people believe. That Abraham's bosom, when the harrowing of hell occurred, Yeshua went down and emptied it out. And therefore, it's not like that anymore that it stands as an empty chamber. But here's the thing, if the harrowing of hell is questionable, so is that claim. And so for future discussion, just note that Abraham, David, Noah, and the thief that Yeshua said would be there and many others could still be there now. In the presence of Hashem, 2 Corinthians 5.8, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, right? What does that mean? I don't know. (laughs) And neither do you. But, but, But this is absolutely, potentially a consideration. Now, What are they waiting for there? If they're still there, what are they waiting for? It's one word, it's real easy. What are they waiting for in Abraham's bosom? Resurrection. And this lines up with apostolic theology. A universal resurrection for everybody. And when Messiah comes, the first resurrection of who? The righteous. Where are the righteous, according to what I'm saying? In Abraham's bosom, in the presence of God, in paradise in some way, however that works. I don't know. So that idea of the the limbus partum and the harrowing of hell, we we might have a challenge with that. But but where where might we find some explanation for this, for this Abraham's bosom? Well, here's one really well-stated consideration. And some of what I'm saying today, actually a, a good bit of this lecture or this sermon, is from Chronicles of the Messiah. And so I thank Daniel Lancaster for some of these insights. But there's a Christian Hebraist, Jonathan Lightfoot, 17th century, He rejected outright the harrowing of hell and that whole limbus partum and all that other kind of stuff. He was a Christian Hebraist. Here's his wonderful quote. If our Savior had been the first author of this phrase, Abraham's bosom, then it might have been tolerable to have looked for the meaning of it amongst Christian expositors. But seeing it as a scheme of speech so familiar amongst the Jews, and our Savior spoke no other than in the known and common dialect of that nation, the meaning of it must be fetched thence, that is from Judaism, not from any Greek or Roman lexicon. In other words, we need to look further back than the Gospel of Nicodemus and probably the mid-2nd century too to understand. Okay? We good with that? Kind of boring. Some history? Important. And you remember the baptism theory that I said. We, we can understand this parable as one that utilized well-known language, thought, and theology in Second Temple Judaism. In other words, Yeshua didn't make this up. And what we'll see, though, is so many have longed to make this the definitive word on hell and torment and the destination of the righteous and the wicked. And you can't get there from here, I'm sorry. The immortality of the soul, as evidenced through Pharisaic thought, uh, an afterlife for the soul, the soul leaving the body, reward and punishment after death, descent to Sheol or Hades or paradise, and going to these one of these two destinations. That's what Abraham's bosom and the Luke, the Luke 16 stuff is is about. And it's all Pharisaic. It's all from Pharisaic post-mortem theology. This isn't limbo. it's, It's paradise. Now, meet Lazarus. Anyone know what Lazarus' name means? Some suggest that this is Lazarus that Yeshua raised from the dead. It's not that Lazarus. It's not him. But Lazarus' name means Helped by God. This is the only uh, that I'm aware of parable where a proper name is used. He identifies Eleazar, laser, Lawrence in uh, that's how that translates into English. But and for, and, and for that reason, I should say, some people immediately say this isn't a parable. This is the actual facts of the matter. This is what happened. This is this guy, laser, this rich guy. He's telling it like it is fact of the matter. No parable. There's a reason I think that Elazar is named. You heard, you heard what was happening to Elazar, Right. He was late at the opening of the gate of his house. He was full of blisters. He craved to be satisfied from the bits that fell from the rich man's table. The dogs would even come and lick his blisters. Man, what a crappy life. And who helped him? No one. No one. Except God. So his name in the parable is fittingly, Elazar helped by God because no one else would. We're going to find a number of consistencies here in Yeshua's parable and the Pharisaic view of the afterlife starting here, starting right here. What happened to Elazar when he died? I'll read it to you. When the poor man died, the angels carried him to Avraham's lap. Cool. Angelic escort to the afterlife? Where have we heard that before? I know it's been two weeks, but two weeks ago I told you where we heard that before. In Pharisaic theology and writings that the angels provide an escort for the righteous to their destination in the afterlife. Yeshua Seemingly just confirmed that in a unique way. Let me just stand here. I'm going to settle myself down, and I'm going to stand here and share this information with you. The Talmud speaks of an angelic host of escort for the righteous, and not necessarily to leave the wicked out, they also get an escort, but it ain't to a good place. Also interesting to note, note this, pay attention to this, how obvious does it make it that Elazar was a holy, righteous, pure man, that he was a man who loved God, that he was a man who served God all his days, and most importantly, that he was a disciple of Yeshua, that he had proclaimed Jesus and put him in his heart. Where is that in that text? You can't find it. There's no mention of Elazar's piety. Well, how in the world did he get here then? Let's consider what the Talmud says. We've talked about it before. It says that some people suffer so desperately in this world that there is no Gehenna for them. They go straight to paradise. Strange. One that suffered immensely in this world need not suffer in Gehenna. His torment was here. Now, please, please note that I am not suggesting a theological approach in what I'm saying. I'm giving you, additionally, some information to consider. The rich man. What do we know about the rich man? He was in Sheol. His pain was very great. He lifted his eyes and saw Abraham at a distance and Eleazar at his bosom by his side on his lap. Now, given the context of what is happening to this rich guy down there, we know he's not just in a sort of limbo happy place. He's not in a good place. We could say Gehenna, a part of Sheol, Gehenna. and he could see Abraham and Lazarus and, and at least Abraham could see him which is highly just weird but it's not weird and they didn't think anything was weird about it at all why remember first Enoch talking about compartments in Sheol. Remember the, par- the Pharisaic description of the geography of Sheol, that the chasm separates, but it's just a hand between? And so this parable is... Seemingly suggesting something like a chasm of separation that one can see across. Now, the rabbis have a very familiar proof text from which they draw this. You'll know it Isaiah 66 24. Anyone know what that talks about? It talks about worms that don't die and fire that cannot be quenched. I'll read you the text. Are you in a hurry to get anywhere? I want to be be sensitive to your time, but there's good information that we need to get out here. Then they will go out and look at the corpses of the people who have rebelled against me, for their worm will not die and their fire will not be extinguished, and they will be an abhorrence to all mankind. The rabbis suggest that this geography is implied here, that we will look at the corpses in Gehenna, who the righteous will look At the corpses in Gehenna, worms will not die, gnashing of teeth, all drawn from similar context when Yeshua describes those in Gehenna. The rich man lifted his eyes. He looked up and saw them. And the rabbis say that we want to be someone who is not looked down on, but looked up at, right? Be as the onlookers of whom it is written in Isaiah 66. Then they will go forth and look upon the corpses of men who've transgressed me. Do not be among those who are looked upon of whom it is written in Isaiah 66, for their worm shall not die. God has made the one as well as the other. That is Gehenna and paradise. What is the distance between them? A handbreadth. Rabbi Yochanan, a wall divides the two. The rabbis, they run parallel so that one is visible to the other. You understand that? Don't be the one who's being looked up at where Lazarus and Abraham are. Be the one who's looking down at the rich man. What is the rich man's current torment that we know from the the text? He was in Sheol and his pain was very great. That's not descriptive. He lifted his eyes, saw Abraham at a distance and Lazar in his lap. He cried out and said, my father, Abraham, be gracious to me, please send Lazar and let him dip the tip of his finger in water to cool my tongue for I am suffering in this burning. There's a little thing in there. I want to point out who does he say to do the work? Who does he want to do the work and later to go back and talk to his brothers? Who does he want to do the work? The measly, pitiful, dirty, stupid servant. That's who. Abraham, please send him back. He still has no value for the guy's life. Even when Lazarus is looking down on him, he's still to him nothing but a peon, a servant. But anyway, he's hot. He's got fire. He's got torment. His tongue And this is Gehenna fire. Gehenna fire is not ordinary fire. The Talmud talks about ordinary fire is one-sixtieth of the fire of Gehenna. You ever taken a big bite of cheese pizza and it just burned the whole roof of your mouth? And you're like, ah, multiply that times 60? That's a Gehenna pizza burn on the top of your mouth. You don't want that. (laughs) Let him dip his finger in the water to cool my tongue. First, Enoch, back from the third century BCE, describes compartments for the righteous and wicked. A bright stream of water contrasted. Bright stream of water in paradise, a dry and dark place. I'm suffering in this burning, he says. And so he calls out to Abraham. And this is an interesting consideration that so many will miss, but you won't because you're getting the Jewish perspective. Do you find it strange that this man in torment calls out to Abraham instead of to God? Why would he not say, God, help me, please help me, God. But no, he says, my father Abraham. Why? Well, As you might imagine, there's a Jewish consideration here. Why does he call out to Abraham? Well, a verse from the Talmud will explain. Those who pass through the valley of weeping, Psalms 84, which implies that the sinners nonetheless will descend to Gehenna, should be explained as follows. When it says those who pass through the valley of weeping, here's the explanation. There it speaks of those who are liable at that time for punishment in Gehenna, but our father Abraham comes and raises them up and receives them. Do you understand what that is saying? Abraham, according to this Talmudic understanding, intercedes for those in Gehenna. Genesis Rabbah, and the hereafter Abraham will sit at the entrance of Gehenna and will not allow any, any circumcised Israelite to descend into it. In other words, somehow or another, Abraham is supposed to be able to mediate. And so he calls out, but here's the nice and wonderful, unique stamp of Yeshua in this parable. You ready? He completely dismisses that. He dismisses that with Abraham's words. When Abraham says, my son, remember, You took your goodness in your life, and Lazar took what was bad. Now he's comforted, and you are suffering. Not only that, but there's a great valley separating us. No one who desires to go from here to you can cross it. John said something similar to the Pharisees. Don't tell me your father's Abraham, because God can raise up sons and daughters of Abraham. So Yeshua in this particular parable is saying to them, It's not Abraham. You can't count on the merit of the fathers if you find yourself in Gehenna. And here's a little twist I'll throw in. I think he's also saying we have a responsibility for our own lives. Abraham can't save you when you're a total absolute jerk on earth. It's our decision to make. those decisions have implications, obviously, in this parable, which is just some food for thought. But remember, the rich man: he had nothing and was in the, the rich man had everything, needed nothing. Elazar had nothing and was in need of everything. El, rich dude, rich dude? I can't help you. You had it good. He had it bad. What did you do? Shumdavar. Not a thing. Whoever accepts the delights of this world will be deprived of the delights of the world to come, the Talmud says. It's a strong statement, but Yeshua said it like this. The last shall be first. Yeshua said it like this. I did not come to be served, but to serve. And not only that, there's this great valley, dude. I can't help you, even if I wanted to. I can't. And here's the really important point that we need to get to. We've seen here that there are a lot of, and I didn't even like, I just scratched the surface of of the depth of texts that I could compare from Jewish literature to what Yeshua is saying here. I just scratched the surface of that with sort of a flyby. But when you view these things through this lens that we've been learning about and have picked up over the last five weeks, you see some really important things. First of all, first of all, this is something you see, that Yeshua is not pulling back the veil and giving you insight into the final answers to heaven and hell. That's not actually at work here. He's not bringing a deep new truth into this real happening that happened here with Eleazar and Deves, the rich man. It's not happening. He's, 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 he's um, not trying to give them this broad, amazing new understanding of things they'd never heard about with Gehenna and paradise. And he's not anywhere, this is bold statement number one, not anywhere indicating in that that there is a fiery, Eternal torment of hell. Even though that's the beginnings of the foundation of that idea. Have been brought forth from this parable. I want to recap these similarities though. Rabbinic language talks of worms that don't die. Yeshua did that. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. All over the rabbinic writings, Yeshua did that. The soul, Yeshua's doing that. Righteous and wicked in Sheol, Yeshua's doing that. The geography of Sheol, Gehenna, paradise, it's in there. Fire, water, angelic host for the righteous, the presence of Abraham, hope for the merit of Abraham, and more. Do you see how closely aligned this is with the theology of the time? That's been, if we were in court, I would hope that the jury would now agree with me that there is an alignment there. Yeshua speaks of those things. Now, some scholars suggest that he was only using this as uh, like folklore, as a way of connecting with the audience. That, of course, none of that had any truth to it whatsoever. Yeshua just talking down to the common man. He, he's just pulling out these fairy tales. That's a real problem in my mind. I don't know about yours, but it is to me because, well, does it all have to be exactly like this? Do they all have to securely align and and everything be perfect? No, but come on. If Yeshua was in disagreement, radical disagreement, or if this is some kind of Jewish fairy tale, should he be using this as a teaching example? Should he not, as our rabbi, as our Messiah, as our ultimate teacher, should he not make an effort to correct that thinking? Which, other than the Abraham thing, he doesn't really do that. Shouldn't he do that? Shouldn't he have told us what was really going to happen? That everything these rabbis are saying, these these man-made, they're all fairy tales, wouldn't he have taken the time to correct this horrendous thinking? Shouldn't he have done that? I think he should. But even more than that, some dispute that this is a parable, as I said, and that Yeshua's main purpose here was to unveil the mysteries of death and eternal destination, direct us all away from burning in hell by believing in him. That this parable is here for one and only one purpose, to tell you, if you don't believe in Jesus, you will burn in hell Now, you have to go to the end of the series with me uh, based on the statement that I made because you might say, and you're saying that's not true. Well, you just need to go to the end of the series with me. But this is an even worse consideration that this is a real thing that Yeshua is laying it all out there and this is it. There's no instruction in here whatsoever for us, about what we're supposed to do to be with Abraham or paradise or anything that has to do with Yeshua. What prayer are we supposed to say? Or, or how do we believe in Yeshua? Where is that to escape the fires of hell? Or how is this, how this is what it. Could be, but it's not anymore because I came and I saved the world. And you know that thing John said, you know, that was, but it's not anymore. None of that is in there. What we actually have in there is an affirmation of much of the rabbinic description Some prior to Yeshua, yes. Much of it later than Yeshua too. We need to be very honest and open about the number of years of literature we're drawing on. But this is like this post-mortem experience. And it's nothing new for his audience about sin, uh, life after death. There's nothing in here about heaven or salvation. And other than that little bit of Abraham can't help you thing, Nowhere does it tell us, but Jesus can. As a matter of fact, we're going to close right here. As a matter of fact, this could be incredibly troubling to anti Torah people in the world. Why might I say that? Well, because here's what Abraham says. And I'm getting ahead a bit because I haven't gotten down to this part. But he says to him, the rich man says to Abraham, if that's the case that you can't get to me and I can't be saved... My father, I ask of you, send Lazarus to my father's house, for I have five brothers. Let him testify to them so that they do not come along to this place of suffering. Abraham said, what did Abraham say? Do you know what he said? You've got to know what he said. They have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to that. Man, that's a difficult text thrown right in the middle of this. That would pose a real problem for someone who's talking about how the Torah is cursed and horrendous. The validity of Torah for something in our after world, afterlife experience? Can this possibly be? Is this the definitive word on the afterlife, courtesy of Yeshua, as we've finally gotten into the New Testament to talk about it? What have we learned here? Well, we sort of get a bit of a glimpse of the post-mortem experience from the mouth of Yeshua. The problem is, it's not much different than anything else we've heard up to this point in this series or anything else. So that's not incredibly helpful. There are at least seven versions of this story in Jewish literature. Here's one. A certain poor scholar died. He had a small funeral. At the same time, Bar Mayan, the village tax collector, died. A scholar died. The village tax collector died. The whole town took time to come off and mourn this tax collector. The poor scholar's friend wept, saying, Woe, for the righteous of Israel will have nothing. After a few days, the holy man saw his fellow holy man in a dream, walking among gardens, orchards, and fountains of water. Where was he? In paradise. He saw Bar Ma'ayan, the village tax collector, with his tongue hanging out by a river. He wanted to reach the river, but he could not reach it. There are at least seven stories like this in rabbinic literature or Jewish literature. Sounds familiar. So, if we're looking for Yeshua in this story to give us the answers we want to know, to provide his unique and wonderful Yeshua the Messiah clarity, we are not getting it in Luke 16. I'm sorry. I promised you something at the beginning and I've left you disappointed. I'm sorry. The the air. I'm sorry, the audience already knew that, which raises a serious point. What is the point? What is the point? Where's the application point, the save me from hell part? If the audience already knew this, then what's the point? And we'd have to ask a different question than that. What is new about this point? What is new? Or what should we be taking serious note of? What's the theme? What's the take home? If not the Sheol, the fire, the valley, the Abraham stuff, if not that, then what? Because Yeshua, we need the answers. The parable's not over. We'll pick it up next week. Shabbat Shalom.